Positive World is brought to you by Quip. The truth is, guys, that most of us are brushing our teeth all wrong, not for long enough, and we forget to change our brush on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing. Here we go. But not Quip. Here so we go. So what makes Quip so different? What, Tommy? Here's what? how you do it, Johns. For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes. What? Still about packing bulking, just the right amount of vibrations to what help about a vibrations? clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist recommended two minutes two with minutes, guiding that's a buzzing that reminds you when to switch guiding sides. Guiding what? Guiding Next. what? It's not guiding buzzing. Quip's it's not guiding buzzing, Tommy. You're insulting the advertisers and the audience by changing it. You know that it's guiding pulses. Next. You know that it's guiding pulses, Tommy. Cut that. Next, no, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also heads comes with come a mount door. that suctions right to your mirror. The mount suctions. And it unsticks as a unsticks. cover for hygienic travel wherever you take those teeth. Finally, everyone loves Quip. They are on Oprah's O-List. They are named one of Time's best inventions, which is everyone's favorite web pamphlet. Uh, and it's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers who Quip every day. Hmm. I made it a verb. Hmm. Get Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash crookedworld right now, you get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crookedworld. Just the right amount of vibrations. Getquip.com slash crookedworld. My guest today is Abdi Noor Ifton. He's the author of Call Me American, a memoir about his migration from Somalia to Kenya and finally to the United States. Abdi, I'm so excited to talk with you on the week of July 4th because in my mind, there is nothing more patriotic uh, and American than someone who loves this country so much that they persevered through as much hardship as you did to make it to the United States. So thank you for talking with me uh, and, uh, and, and heading down to the studio in Portland. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Fourth uh, of July is uh, is, a, is a big day in my life, so I really appreciate it. And uh, to be able to uh, celebrate Fourth of July is a big thing. Yeah, it's really cool. So the book is called Me American, and it details your life growing up in Somalia as the country is is just torn apart by violence. But things weren't always bad. In fact, for a period of time, your dad was a famous basketball player. Can you talk about what Somalia was like in those early years before uh, the civil war started? Somalia was a pretty stable nation in the um, before the civil war. We're talking about uh, any time before uh, before 1991. So at this point, the only uh, major problem that was facing Somalia and the entire nation was the famine and the droughts that actually kicked out. Uh, my my parents from uh, from their uh, lives in the nomadic life, and then they came to the city, which was uh, pretty stable, and uh, they could uh, they could you know figure out other ways to make some money. So my dad was doing some uh, some fishing in a you know a little while, and then eventually somebody you know somebody saw him and thought that he was a perfect. Uh, uh, fit for the basketball because he could jump so high. So it was Somalia was a at the time a a place where you could you could be something if you want to work for it if you want to work hard for it. So that's what my dad was doing. Uh, no no one was worried about <laughs> actually no one was worried about war, and no one expected that the war was coming at all. You know it was uh, it was uh, it was a uh, pretty 
stable nation and uh, Somalia was one of the most powerful nations in Africa and uh, our arms you know the military and everything else was was just was just extremely well prepared uh, uh, and we had a war with Ethiopia at, at some point in 1977 and it, there, there's a rare history where two African nations ever go into a war so this was one of the historic uh, two African nations going to war you know and uh, if you look at it today it's completely different a different story. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to remember that, you know, things can go badly quickly when there's conflict involved and it can really just be incredibly damaging to the people who live in any given country, whether it's Somalia or Syria or, you know, name the place. But you, know, you were still a small boy, like you were saying, when things got bad. Um, there was the drought. There was war with Ethiopia. There was internal civil war between uh, rival factions. Uh, and that was all before the Islamists rose to power and al-Shabaab was formed in, in 2006. I mean, the book is mostly about your unbelievable struggle to survive and persevere during that period. I thought you summed it up well when you wrote that, quote, by 2008, Somalia had been at war for 17 years, but calling this living hell a war was too polite. It was really just endless, gory terrorism on starving civilians who didn't care which side won. A million people had been killed and a million and a half forced from their homes. I mean, those are just staggering numbers. Can you help us understand how... Somalia was torn apart so fast and how you and your family managed to survive during that period? Well, the first generation of displacement began exactly when I was um, five years old. That was 1991. And the Somalis have been on the move. And uh, it was only women and children that like our family that who could not afford to leave Somalia, you know, those who could board a ship already left, and those who could uh, fly left, and those who could cross the border by walking already left. Somalia is a big country, and we ended up in Mogadishu. And to go to Kenya, it would take us, uh, I would say, you know, 20 days or so. And um, we that's not something we could do. And, and <laughs> interestingly enough, my mother didn't know what direction was Kenya or Ethiopia. So at this point, she only the only thing we could do was to go out into the bush. To me, the way I saw it was it was like a an entire building that collapses within a minute, you know, um, mm-hmm. and collapses to the uh, to ashes. So that's how the civil war in Somalia started. I was I was standing up there with my mother, and we were on the move. We were saying goodbye to our house, and uh, the moment I realized that the the man who was uh, um, on the on the ground, uh, his face pushed to the sand and and blood and everything else was all over him. I realized that, you know, that man was my favorite snack man. He he's the man who owned the uh the snack bar um in the corner where our dad when he came home on Fridays from work, that's where he used to take us, mm-hmm. uh my brother and I. When that man was killed, that's when I realized this war is real and the bullets can actually kill someone. And then from there, um, you know, it, it we they named us many things. You know, the uh, the war torn nation, the uh, the war written country, the civil war ravaged Somalia. I mean, so many names that the world called us until even the famine and and the droughts. Uh, uh, the, I, I talk about this in my book that the famine had been killing in more than the the bullets. So right. uh, you can imagine what. Those pictures that 
um, the uh, the newspapers in the United States had published uh, early 90s with uh, young children so thin, um, you know, and, and insects landing on their faces. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what triggered uh, the United States Army to intervene and then the world to join them. Um, that's how serious and very uh, uh, desperate Somalia was like. And I was right there. I, yeah. I, may, I might not have been that kid that was all over the, the newspaper, but I was like him, you know. Right. And that's when the world actually realized that, well, this is the silent killer because, you know, nobody was um, was talking about it. And uh, uh, not like Syria today where everyone talks about it, where so many countries are involved. But it, it, it turns out that Somalia was left by itself and the warlords took advantage of that you know, with, with no accountability, with no one talking to them. So they just were able to do anything. And I was caught up in this uh, situation where the only thing I could hope was death, but also, you know, another day of waking up breathing was just a miracle. And I, I always was surprised, you know, because I, I expected to die any time. But then surviving uh, to the teenage and then as a grown-up man was just absolutely something so amazing, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, especially to be alive, alive and uh, and healthy today uh, to come to the United States. So um, I wake up every day in Maine and raise my hands up and I say, thank you, God. Everything yeah. <laughs> that I have is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I mean, I think a lot of people when they think, when they hear famine and they hear about, you know, countries dealing with mass hunger or in food insecurity, think it's because of just weather or drought or you know, a, a disease in a crop, they don't always think about it, famine being conflict-driven. But like you said, I mean, Somalia was both. And it feels like it took a long time before the international community took notice uh, and intervened. And it was so desperate that, you know, you write about how Somalis were trying to leave to flee to Yemen, uh, which I think is a country that, you know, we think of today as being incredibly food insecure and dealing with a lot of the same violence. But, I mean, that was seen as a, a destination to escape to, right? Yes, yes. Yemen was uh, – two reasons. Yemen was the closest that you could go to, um, and uh, it was a different continent. It was not mm-hmm. in Africa. So that those two things caused, uh, I would say, uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Somalis uh, to to talk to take that route, and uh, the people who were do- handling this um, later will become the Somali pirates, and they make a movie out of them called right. Captain Phillips. So these are the same people that I went to, and they charged eighty dollars, eight zero dollars for each person to board on this uh, on this boat that was going to Yemen. But I couldn't afford eighty dollars, so I had fifty dollars, and I traveled all the way from Mogadishu, and they couldn't let me jump into that boat. And I talk about it in my book. That's that's pretty much my story, specifically when I say that uh, one of my friends was on the boat and I waved goodbye to him and he survived and he made it to Yemen. And another friend, you know, gets on a different boat and he drones and dies. You know, my really good friend, Abdullah Madobe, I talk about him in the book. So, and then I say, that's my story. It's a, it's either survive or die, you know. And uh, to us, Yemen was, uh, we were not looking at Yemen for the economic purposes. We were um, looking for uh, the fundamental uh, uh, human desire that everyone wants. When you are living in a a war, there's only one thing that you hope for, 
it's the peace. And that's one thing I had, I had not been able to find one single moment in Somalia. And I wondered what it, what it would feel like to wake up in the morning and never expect to die. So that's what I was looking for. I wasn't really looking for, uh, uh, you know, an, an economic opportunity or anything like that. All I needed was to get to Yemen and, and wake up in a refugee camp and say, I'm safe. You know, that's what I was what I was hoping for, but it didn't happen. I couldn't afford um, enough money to uh, to go to Yemen at that point. And then I, you know, I was forced to go back to Somalia and live through the hell that was happening at the time. Right. I mean, you know, I, I think so much of the conversation that we're having right now, and I, and I want to get to Trump later, but is about ways to be as harsh as humanly possible to people seeking asylum to the United States or trying to come in without proper documentation as if that would deter them. But you described you know, the life of a Somali refugee in such unbelievably, uh, just how unbelievably hard it was for you. I mean, you said Somali refugees were like the migrating wildebeest that faced crocodiles one way and hyenas the other. I mean, you literally had Shabab taking over one area or you had rival clans fighting in another. Uh, and along the way, everyone was extracting bribes from you, whether it was in Kenya or Somalia or anywhere else. I mean, it felt, is it impossible situation. It doesn't seem like anything the United States or any other country could do would would deter someone uh, from wanting to leave there. That's true. And I also think it teaches us a lesson. You know, for example, um, if I if I frown myself, if like uh, I was I was uh, was marching the other day on the streets of the United States with a sign in my hand and, and, you know, with hundreds of people all over the place. And at some point, I was actually smiling. I know that everyone else was frowned, but I was smiling. I, the, the reason I smiled was exactly the things that you just mentioned, which is like um, in Somalia, I could never march against al-Shabaab, the, Islamic, uh, the Somali Islamist terrorists. I could not march against the warlords that, mm-hmm. that could have killed me. I could not march against the Kenyan police. You know, I was uh, I was in my room and hiding from them. That, that I never had the courage to ever do that. But at some point, whatever is happening in the United States to me is like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. So at some point, I'm really, really excited and privileged to be able to do this. Whereas uh, when I get uh, on the dinner table with everyone else, you know, I, I can't imagine how so frustrated they are. Of course, I'm frustrated too because I don't want America to ever be like what we have been through. I, it's easy to start a war, mm-hmm. but it's never easy to get out of war. So that's why, you know, it's important uh, for us um, to to feel like we need to do something for that not to happen. And um, for us and, you know, for, for someone like me who had been through all of this, but at some point I had some love and a dream and a determination to 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 have an identity mm-hmm. to earn a, a a dream and the only place in the world that I could do that was America right. and I was I was exposed to America because of its you know influence in how the world works and the through the movies through the music and there was no other country that ever came to me like that so at this point to me America was just you know a representative of what the world looks like and I could name myself you know with America, and I talk about it in my book that I later realized that all white people are not the same, and they not they don't all eat pork, they don't all speak English, and that's one thing I was trying to teach my mother, and uh, and every time I talk, she would she would say, "Shut up," you know, <laughs> and 
it's like why do you want to learn all of that kind of stuff and 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 how uh besides the war and the uh recruitment uh uh, uh process that was happening at the time whether right. uh from the warlords or from the islamists later how i had been thinking differently how i i was already inspired with democracy and freedom and tolerance and most importantly the american way of life you know right. where um somalis are a homogenous community and sometimes there are things that are taboo like you cannot be uh, different from everyone else it's so hard but i decided to be different i decided to feel that the things that i see on the movies aren't really a crime or a sin and i thought that was great Positive the world's brought to you by Express VPN. Guys, what? Been a lot of news lately about hacks, data breaches, scary Russians doing shit that we don't really understand or I've our president that it's terrifying. pretends doesn't happen. It is hard for us not to worry about our digital privacy. No matter what you do online, your mobile carrier, internet service provider, track it all. Every website you visit, every email you send, it is ridiculous. Hear that, love it? That is yes. why I decided to take back my privacy using Express VPN. These days, I don't use the internet without it. ExpressVPN is the world's leading VPN provider that lets you securely use the internet without being tracked by anyone. It keeps your online activity private and anonymous while you browse, email, download, or stream. ExpressVPN is great for streaming content. You can even use it to watch the World Cup without a cable subscription. How cool is that? Wait, yeah, their easy-to-use app encrypts all your internet data and hides your IP address, protecting your cool. entire connection. ExpressVPN costs less than 7 bucks a month and runs seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet every time you use the internet. Without it, you're putting sensitive data at risk. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash crookedworld. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash crookedworld for free month three with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash crookedworld to learn more. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Finn. Everyone hates mundane tasks they could use help completing. Generally... These tasks take away from more important things we need to do. Finn is a high-quality, on-demand assistant that handles the administrative aspects of your life so you can focus on what matters most. Your life's in shambles. Get a, You're a mess. Get Finn. Thousands of busy professionals already rely on Finn to handle tasks like scheduling meetings, booking travel, buying gifts, or even more complex jobs like creating a website, planning an event, or performing market buying, research. Buying a gift is a great thing to have. Great. Yes. How great would it be to be like, hey, Finn, it's my relative's birthday he or she is turning 52 figured out yeah have at it and then just let me know what happens i went real vague there so no one could yell at me if i do this in the future i know like the best assistant finn knows your preferences remembers the people you interact with and integrates with your email and your calendar finn can make calls send emails pay bills remember important dates and automatically gets things done for you if you're someone who doesn't have 40 hours of work for an assistant every week, here's the best part. Finn is always available on demand, and you only pay for what you use. Once you try Finn, you're going to love it. I don't doubt that. And as a listener of Pod Save the World, you can try Finn for free. Just use this link, finn.com slash crookedworld. That's F as in Frank, I-N dot com slash crookedworld to try Finn for free. Finn.com slash crookedworld. You fell in love with the culture of America. Um... But at one point, the the international community, including the U.S., actually sent troops to Mogadishu to try to 
break the warlord's grip on power and, and feed people. And you were living in Mogadishu when that happened. And I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the book Black Hawk Down or the movie. And you write about how you were living in Mogadishu when that happened. And you actually were just a child at the time. And one of them, ones who played hide and go seek in the wreckage of one of the helicopters just days later. I mean, what was that brief period like when the international forces and the U.S. was was occupying Somalia? And why do you think uh, the population quickly turned on them and wanted them out? Well, from, from my perspective at the time as a child, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the war. I thought this was a real movie, you know, action movie that was happening before my eyes. So when the helicopters came down, we ran towards, you know, where the smoke was coming from. Mm-hmm. It was fun. It was like a it was like a real war game to us. But then the um, the the Somali militias who are determined um, in taking back their city have been able to knock at doors um, in every neighborhood and and convince the tribes that supported them that they you know that they belong to this the tribe called the Hawiya tribe. They were able to convince them that um, America is a non-Muslim country that's invading Somalia mm-hmm. and, and trying to introduce Christianity and, and build up churches and, and all of that. That's how they were able to I- influence in the hearts and minds of the people through the propaganda that they have been doing. Right. That is specifically Muhammad Farah Adid's, you know, uh, militiamen were doing. But most importantly... The warlords had already been oppressing the Somalis. So, like, my family, my mother could never say anything but just sit there and watch. And the only um, demonstrations that you could see out out of Mogadishu were people who were either um, supporting the warlords or who were forced to come out on the streets and drag American bodies, you know, on the ground. And then there's the other part, which, like, the kids, the little ones, like myself, who had no idea what was happening, but we thought it was fun, you know, running all over the place. Right. And and I talk about it in my book. I say, like, I just can't wait to see how these Americans crash the warlords and the militias. I couldn't wait, you know, for that to happen. But at some point, it wasn't happening. The, the, the militias were everywhere, and they were able to shoot down the helicopters. They were able to chase the American um, uh, uniforms on the streets of Mogadishu and pushing, pushing them all the way to the oceans. And then it was a different page where like they they the militias showed me how powerful and how unbreakable they are and we were laughing and clapping and we said wow you know and we were running after them and we started throwing rocks at the helicopters so it was like as children we could only follow the the ones that were winning at the time and uh i i haven't thought of what would happen when the americans leave you know, most probably a situation would go back to, to, to the way it was, the militias again back to the city and starving Somalis and shootings and death and everything else. Right. Um, but did I expect that Americans would ever withdraw? I, I did not. I thought that like the movies, they would always be, always be the winners. Right. You know, like the heroes in the movies are always winners and kill the thags and uh, the, the villains and everything else. But it didn't happen that way. It was completely you know, a different story where the warlords were able to, you know, kick down uh, bodies of Americans on the uh, on the streets of Mogadishu and uh, and America withdraws. And that's when I said, you know, it ended like I never expected, but I didn't give up. I continued uh, watching America, uh, not on the streets of Mogadishu, but on the movies. 
Yeah. So you, you talk about in the book how movies saved your life. I mean, wh- what you lived through is unimaginable for me, but the book is sprinkled with these cultural references that feel like we could have been friends growing up. I mean, you loved Rambo and Commando and movies that I was watching, and you were listening to Tupac and Michael Jackson and 50 Cent. How did you come to love America? And, and like, what did you mean when you said movies saved your life? Let's think about this. Somalia had no other entertainment except movies. And that was, uh, I talk about the madrasa, this place where you go and learn Quran. So it was extremely painful when the teacher beats, you know, beat me every day, uh, whether I memorize it or no. I mean, whether I'm good or bad, it's just the beating was like permanent or constant. Um, So at this point, uh, uh, movies where a place where I could relax my mind and watching it, it just took me into their world. Like I'm sitting there physically, but then I am with Arnold Schwarzenegger and his daughter, you know, in the apartment, just watching them or, you know, driving around the streets and watching them doing something on the streets of America and the lights and the nice and clean um, um, environment that they were living in. So that's what, what I mean the, you know, the movies had actually uh, saved my life. It it just showed me that there is a, another world outside of Somalia. That's where these Marines that came to Mogadishu who did not point their guns in my head, <laughs> that's where they lived. That's right. where they grew up. That's where they belong to. And yeah. that's when I realized, you know, uh, because uh, uh, Eddie Murphy kind of looks like me. He's a dark skin and, and Denzel Washington. So I realized, well, there's no white or black in America, and that's where everyone can live, you know, and uh, I, I, and that's when I thought I could do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, the the book is just an incredible story of perseverance and your your will to live and fight and, and get through anything. And you eventually, you get to, uh, to Nairobi and to Kenya, and you ultimately got to America because you literally won the lottery. I mean, on a whim, you entered the diversity immigrant visa program or green card lottery. And a lot of Americans have learned about this program for the first time, even though it's not new, uh, back when President Trump decided to, to lie about it. But uh, the gist is every year, 8 to 15 million people around the world apply. Only 50,000 get visas. You somehow won, but that didn't mean you got handed a visa and a plane ticket on site, right? It was actually the start of another brutally difficult process that you then had to go through. Yes. And diversity visa is for everyone. It doesn't matter where you come from. But at some point, a country like Somalia, the U.S. The US State Department was, was a bit confused how to treat with a Somali, a refugee um, from Somalia who right. does not have basic documents. I didn't have a passport. I didn't have a birth certificate. Um, I didn't have an ID. Those, those things do not exist in Somalia. But at this point, I was able to win out of out of those 15 million people that apply to the diversity uh, immigrant visa lottery every year. And that's me in America because as you can imagine, there's no other country in this world that uh, that has the same system, the diversity lottery. Um, and I was able to win it. But at some point, this is uh, this was specifically a, a difficult moment. It was right. a difficult period being a Somali when uh, Kenya shut down its borders because Somalia was infested with uh, Al-Shabaab. And it was you could not trust a young man in his 20s uh, who just came, come from Somalia and 
did not come with his family. It was the chances of the U.S. Embassy um, accepting, you know, my application and trying to bring me to the U.S. was very low because, you know, um, they could not trust who I was. It, you know, it was they had they had this assumption that a young man from Somalia, you know, he's pretty much probably an Al Shabaab. So that right. was the idea. So um, that's the struggle that I was going through. For example, if I if I um, if I was a Kenyan citizen, the process wouldn't have been this difficult. My story right. would not have been uh, on NBR or on the BBC or on This American Life. But what made it very difficult at the at the moment was like, wow, a refugee just wins, you know, a diversity lottery, and and this is not a not a regular refugee. I'm someone who learned English from movies but now moved to Kenya and had a great connection to America because through my stories, um, I met so many American friends that were able to support me financially and, and you know, where, where we tried uh, a U.S. non-immigrant visa through uh, U.S. college, but I had not been accepted. I was told that, well, that's not possible because you're a refugee and uh, a non-immigrant visa uh, means that you need to come back once your studies are finished. Um, so at this point, I was in this <laughs> very difficult situation where I was hiding from Al-Shabaab, um, from the Kenyan police, um, thinking that we're Al-Shabaab. And my brother and I were stuck in this apartment for three months, and we were starving to death. We were out of water. We were out of food. And this is when I call the U.S. Embassy and they tell me, nope, you know, you need to put together all the documents that we need or otherwise you're not going to get your visa. Yeah. And I tried. I remember I cried that day. I had tears on my eyes and I said, you can't imagine what's happening to us. And the lady on the other phone said, bureaucracy, you know, there's no way that, you know, we can. I mean, it can't happen. We, you know, we can't show you. We can't give you treat you differently. So uh, you got to go find that. And let's go from there. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned this in passing, and I think uh, I should just clarify, everybody, that along the way in, in Mogadishu, in Somalia, you met uh, a journalist. You began communicating with him. That led to him writing a story about you and, and your life, uh, which led you to getting an opportunity to essentially act as a correspondent both from Somalia and then also to talk about what life was like as a refugee. So, you, you talked about how, you know, the bureaucracy of uh, dealing with the U.S. system. But what, what was amazing to me was how difficult it was. I mean, you were paying countless bribes. You were navigating these demands for paperwork and vetting living as a refugee in Kenya, including having to get paperwork from Nairobi cops uh, saying that you were not a criminal, who were the same people who every time they saw you would beat you up and rob you and extract a bribe from you and must have been the most unbelievably frustrating process imaginable it was it was so difficult and i was uh i was not only give i was not only giving bribes i was also giving myself up um because yeah i mean how can you even imagine that the police were looking for us and that's why i said we were hiding in the apartment and then at some point i end up going inside it's like going in you know in the belly of the uh, of the right. beast right? right so i was like right there standing in the middle of this thing and i was i still i, I can never forget that feeling that day i was shivering i couldn't feel my feet i couldn't feel any you know part of my skin i was just wondering 
you know, they can shoot me or they can jump on me and choke me and drag me on the floor. I mean, anything could happen that day. But I gathered all the courage that I had in my heart and I said, this is it or, you know, this is, uh, I mean, it's now or never. So I stood there and, you know, I started to, to talk to him and he looked around for the cameras and that's when we started negotiating and I can't believe how how amazing that moment felt, you know, when um, I was able to handle this uh, through the bribery. But welcome to Kenya. That's how things happen. Right. Uh, as long as you can pay somebody. And uh, I mean, if you look at his story, it just tells you that the Kenyans were not really, the, the police specifically, were not really interested in deporting the Somalis back to Somalia. It was just frightening us so that we could give up everything that we had, yeah. um, including the money that we had, the jewelries and everything else, you know. And they had been doing this. They took um, hundreds of thousands of Somalis into this concentration camp. It was a, a, a soccer stadium. And at some point, everyone comes back home. And then the second day, the police shows up again. And then they took them back to the same field as long as, you know, everyone was paying uh, for uh, for their freedom. Um, and that was what was happening at the time. And thankfully, my brother and I had some cash uh, from the Americans that that realized how hard and unbelievable we were we were living at the time. But imagine what would happen if we couldn't afford to pay the police. We would end up being sent back to Somalia. And then what would happen? We were a perfect target for Al-Shabaab mm-hmm. because that's the reason that Al-Shabaab was bombing Kenya right. so that the Kenyans could turn against the refugees and that the refugees come back to Somalia. And then that would be an easy way for Al-Shabaab to start recruiting young men who lost hope and who had been kicked out of everywhere else. And this is uh, almost now it's 27, 28 years of war that that's happening in Somalia. Yeah. So we have an entire generation that's uneducated, um, hopeless, and just wondering what to do in their lives. Now, right. Europe is closing its doors. There's a civil war in, in Yemen. And the United States had uh, put Somalia under the, the list of those countries that can never, I mean, that cannot come into the U.S. So this, I will talk about the travel ban. This is a great gift for Al-Shabaab to start recruiting. Right. I want to ask you about the travel ban in one second because I know it's impacted you very personally. But, you know, th- through this combination of just sheer will and perseverance and a lot of good luck uh, and some amazing people uh, helping you uh, who had heard your story along the way, you managed to get on an airplane and land in Boston. W- what was it like uh, stepping out into into Logan Airport uh, and, and being in America for the first time? <laughs> uh, it was like going to Mars. You know, what would happen <laughs> if, you, if, if someone t- told you that you were going to Mars today? And I, I was wondering if the gravitation in America felt, you know, I, I came off the plane and uh, everyone else was, was so busy and these Americans knew where they were going. You know, they, they were able to uh, carry their luggage out of the plane and, you know, move forward to the, um, to the terminal. But I... I stood there for a minute, you know, just, you know, just wondering America. You know, it, it, it felt amazing. And I remember kneeling down and just being the most excited man in the world that uh, that evening, um, uh, August uh, 11, 2014. And then I proceed inside the airport and, uh, you know, there were breaking news at the time. Michael Brown was shot and killed, but I, I, I really did not want to pay any attention to that. I mean, I could realize that 
so many Americans were frowned and angry and sad, and mm -hmm. they were not talking to each other, and they were looking on their phones. I kept talking to everyone in the line, you know, yeah. hi, how's it going? You know, what's your name? You know, and uh, man, it was it was going through the doors of heaven that yeah. that night. When did you get your first Dunkin' Donuts coffee and donuts in heaven? <laughs> I got my first Dunkin' Donuts coffee August twelfth, the nice. day after the day after I arrived. So the the family I, I live with in, in Yarmouth, Maine, you know, this white American family that sponsored me and they said, We have a place for you to, to stay. I would like to say because I America did not treat me as a refugee when I came to Boston that evening. Mm -hmm. I was treated as uh, as anybody else, you know, someone from Canada or England. So I was not given a refugee assistance. I was not given a uh, trauma counseling or anything like that. So um, because this was diversity lottery and diversity lottery is not a refugee lottery. So they said, you know, welcome to the United States. And now you're you're on your own. So you mm -hmm. need to find a place to stay and you need to find a job. But you're legal. We're going to give you your green card. So that's basically what happened. Wow. And, you know, the family that I stayed with, um, I was so lucky because they gave me a place to stay. And then the second day, uh, going to Dunkin' Donuts for hot chocolate <laughs> yes. was, was part was part of the um, orientation that I had received that day, uh, beginning from how to make breakfast, um, you know, with uh, eggs and toast, um, and how to use the um, dishwasher and uh, you know the um, the oven and everything else, you know. So I going to Dunkin' Donuts was uh, was part of the orientation because it was like a, a two mile walk from where we lived, and we walked down. And I walked into it, and I couldn't read the menu. Uh, but then, you know, um, as I talked to people, I realized the only testiest thing that you could have was the hot chocolate, and I was sticking <laughs> with it for a while. That means uh, you're not just an American. You're a New Englander, my friend. So um, welcome. <laughs> welcome. We'll, we'll teach you all our, our, our angry, weird ways. Pod Save the World is brought to you by Policy Genius. Policy Genii. 71% of people say they need life insurance, but only 59% of coverage. That means 12% of people are procrastinating. Love it. Check the math. I knew I knew we were going to get into a math Love thing. it. Check the math. I'm actually Too amazed slow. by how high those numbers Too are slow. all across the board. Normally, procrastinating is a bad thing. Eh, debatable. But yeah. if you're avoiding getting life insurance, procrastinating may have worked in your favor. <laughs> because, well, you were putting Because you're still alive. Getting life insurance. Policy Genius was making it easy. Policy genius. You know what? Actually, the only people who would regret procrastinating on life insurance can't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Think think it's about true. that. Think about that. It's true. That's think a about well it. well dropped actually. Guys, here's the deal. If you're not dead, Policy Genius is the <laughs> easy way to compare life insurance online. You can compare quotes in just five minutes, and when it's that easy, putting it off becomes a lot harder. You can compare quotes while sitting on the couch watching TV. You can compare quotes while listening to this podcast. Try it right now. I've been doing it while Try you've been it. talking. Hurry up. Okay, you're done. Policy Genius helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and has placed over $20 billion with a B dollars in coverage. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, health insurance. So if you care about it, they can cover it. If you need life insurance and you're putting it off because it's too confusing or you don't have the time, check out Policy Genius. It's the easy way to compare top insurers, find the best value for you. There's no sales pressure. There's no hassle. It's free. Go to policygenius.com when it's this easy to compare life insurance. Why put it off? Back to serious things. You mentioned the, the Muslim ban earlier. 
that that decision by President Trump, that executive order, impacted you personally in a number of ways. I mean, one, you were advised not to leave the country because you wouldn't be able to get back in despite having a green card. And then, I mean, to me, even more more devastating in, in reading in the book was that your brother Hassan uh, was denied uh, it, finally his refugee application. I believe he was still in Kenya at the time. Uh, what what is that? process been like for you? You also write about how, you know, the Muslim community in Maine was truly frightened when Trump was elected because they were worried about being targeted again. I mean, can you just talk about that emotion? Well, first of all, we're still frightened. I I never wake up the same feeling every day after Trump was elected. I am a combination of everything that Trump demonizes and he talks about and that the White House talk about. For example, um, I'm I'm a Muslim. I'm a person of color. I'm a Somali. I'm a refugee, I'm an immigrant, I'm a diversity uh, visa immigrant, a diversity immigrant visa lottery winner. So these are the things that are on the news when you look at it. And if I look at myself with the combination of all of this, it reminds me of the fear of persecution and threat that I had faced both in Somalia and in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Imagine I was in Somalia and I was being targeted for for being an American. The name America almost, you know, got me killed speaking English. I was threatened uh, exercising democracy and freedom and liberty in Somalia almost, you know, killed me. And I thought that the only way out of this is to go to America and I would feel happy and uh, could never feel threatened of who I was. I came to Kenya and I was threatened uh, because of my race as a Somali and then they thought I was a terrorist which actually I was not. I cannot believe that I'm in America today and the U.S. president, the president of the United States, the most powerful man on earth, is saying that a Muslim, a Somali, you know, a a diversity lottery winner is a problem. We need to stop this. Uh, It scares me, it frightens me, and it weakens my understanding of the American image, you know, because to me the American image was great and wonderful and what made America was how exceptional this nation looked before the eyes of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Now I'm, you know, my, my friends who are still in Somalia have no hope of coming to America, and they might easily fall into the hands of, of al-Shabaab, which scares me as well, because if that happens, they know everything about myself. So at some point, it puts my, my life at risk of what, what, you know, the president and the White House is doing. And I just wrote a book, and I'm... I'm I'm a New Englander. I'm an American. Actually, not as a citizenship, but I still call myself an American. I, I love to say I'm an American. And I'm, I'm, I'm contributing so much to America. I work so hard every day, and I, you know, uh, help uh, the people who need my assistance in any ways. Um, but the, the travel ban is, is I don't know, they, they haven't really thought of this, I think, yeah. but it it uh, increases and it strengthens the image of America's enemy, including al-Shabaab mm-hmm. and al-Qaeda and ISIS. It increases their image because they can say, look, I told you, America yeah. is the enemy of Islam. And that's exactly what al-Shabaab used to say. And that's the, the things that al-Shabaab said to recruit young men. But today, they have a perfect chance to go all over the place and tell people, I told you. See? Yeah. They I mean, hate Muslims. And this, in this case, some people might accept that. I could never accept them, you know, when I was yeah. back in Somalia. And I always thought America was great and that the U.S. president could never 
be saying something about this. But let me say this. I'm not really disappointed. This is the thing about America. He's not the king. The White House, uh, there's no one who owns the White House. You know, um, they're here. They're going to go. But the way, the way I understand to fight this is to stand up and speak up and tell the, uh, the stories. That's why my, what my book um, talks about. It tells the counter-narrative of what they're trying to say. We're not bad people. Even though I'm a Muslim, a Somali, an immigrant, a refugee, but my love for America was unbreakable. Everything happened. I was almost recruited, but I could never uh, say yes to those propagandas that I have heard, you know, come into my door mm-hmm. because America was more important and more, you know, grateful than anything else. I mean, few things, they, yeah, everything about America was fantastic. And I would like, <laughs> I would love to say that I've read um, The Art of the Deal. Yes. You read it while you were, you and your brother read it while you were in Kenya or in, or in Mogadishu, right? We, no, we were in Kenya and we were, this was the, the time when, um, when, when we couldn't get out and, uh, you know, that we, we had the book and somehow I can't, it, it's so funny because this is when the Kenyan police were looking for us and we read the book with a huge smile and wondering how amazing America looks. Um, in the stories that we were reading, and this we were not ex- exposed to so many books in America, but we didn't we didn't understand the difference between Democratic Party or the Republican Party. To us, everything in America was a wonderful thing. So Trump, at the at that time when we read his book, he was a product of America. You know, an America that produces uh, people like him. Um, today, I, I regret. I mean, I, looking back at reading that book, I just say. I wish I knew that he would, he would, you know, he was going to be like this. And I wish I hadn't smiled. Yeah, well, it's okay. A lot of people read that book. And uh, to be honest, he didn't actually write it. So don't feel bad. My, my last question for you is, you know, Somalia has been through this horrific several decades of, of civil war and fighting and, and total lack of governance. You know, what do you think has to be done to to fix things, to get a legitimate uh, government in place that is strong enough to hold territory and, and to provide services to people and allow, you know, a lot of the, the Somalis uh, that you know, even in Maine, would hope to move back one day and make their lives in Somalia. So like, what, what do you think has to happen to allow them to do that someday? Uh, that's a good question. If you're asking me this question um, before 2006, there's there's a way that I could respond it. But now, after 2006, Somalia becomes a, a Islamic state where Al-Shabaab and ISIS is also in the northern Somalia. So what could be done? I think what we could do is for for those people who are trying to avoid the crisis, you know, the things that are happening, the recruitment, the militias, this generation need to receive education. And the best way to do that is to go where they are. Like, uh, let's talk about Dadaab, the largest, um, actually, it may not be the largest now, but it used to be the largest refugee camp in the entire world. And it hosts almost half a million Somalis. And more than half of those are young men who were born in the camps and have no identity and are struggling with to figure out what they need to be. So those type of people and the the ones that come to America and the ones that go to Europe, we need to give them a platform and education to give them some training. 
in in many ways that they could be able to eventually go like you know if if we if i say an example myself um i realize that there's no way i'm going to give up on somalia at all and every day that i wake up in america i realize how so much things i could do to save somalia but to do that i need not only myself but i need so many somalis to be on my side and for that to happen i think the world needs to invest and try to help uh all these generations that had displaced and and relocated themselves into other places before they fall into the trap of al shabab so the best thing i could i could do is america should not put uh, a ban on countries but they could encourage to do things for them instead and that could that could uh, probably in the future help uh, rebuild somalia yeah Avi, thank you for talking with me. The, the book is called Call Me American. It is a, a truly incredible story uh, of survival and, you know, an inspiring one of, you know, a guy who just would not give up. So thank you for uh, for talking with me today, for writing the book. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. You know, and for telling a story about coming to this country that is positive and exciting and uh, what, you know, everyone should aspire to. So happy Fourth of July. You too.